You're listening to Season 2, Episode 22 of Fail Hard, a by-design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity, sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hall. When I was a kid, I used to love the Olympics. Every four years, I remember my sister and I, we would transform our house into this sort of miniaturized version of Olympic Village. You know, we would take all the couch cushions and pillows and pile them together, make these makeshift pommel horses and all this apparatus. We even went so far as to make our own Olympic medals out of mason jar lids. It really is a pity that crafting wasn't and isn't an Olympic sport because I think my sister and I, we would have had a shot at the gold. And I don't know why, but I still today find the Olympics to be compelling and oddly emotional. Part of this probably has to do with the fact that truly amazing performances, they speak to the higher parts of ourselves. When we see one of us do something great, it pulls the entire human race forward. New worlds are made possible. But whether you're a child or an adult, when I see someone pushing themselves to that limit, that moment of proximal development where you're just beyond what you know you can do, where you're pushing to try and get the gold, and on the one hand is chaos and disaster and failure, and on the other, glory and the medal and the gold, that is compelling. That is a universal story, right? I mean, each of us, we're all striving to be the best version of ourselves every day, and us constantly pushing ourselves to that limit without going out of control, that resonates with me. Hope, greatness, commitment, I mean, these themes, they transcend national boundaries. They unite all of us. That's why the games, it has roots that span all the way back to antiquity. Because the, the themes are Olympic timeless. Committee has the honor of announcing that the games of the 30th Olympiad are awarded to the city of London. And as you know, the location of the Olympics, it changes every single time. And cities from all over the world, they put in bids to be the next host city. In fact, a really good friend of mine was part of New York's losing 2012 bid. And I just remember at the time being shocked at how much work actually went into it. It took years and millions and millions of dollars. Just bidding. It's a really expensive proposition. So, for example, I mean, Tokyo, they spent a total of $225 million and eight years before they finally won the bid for the 2020 game. So much work. So much expense. But pitching, as expensive as it is, that's really a rounding error when you consider the larger economic impact of the games. So let's say your city actually wins. Well, that's when the real money, it starts to flow. Because depending on how much existing infrastructure is in place or not, cities, they have to build new roads, enhance airports, construct rail lines to accommodate all these new people. They have to build Olympic Village and housing for the athletes, as well as something like 40,000 hotel rooms, never mind all of these hyper-specific facilities for each of the events. All of this has got to be created or updated, and it gets expensive really quickly. Back in 2008, Beijing spent a staggering $42 billion for the 16-day event. In fairness, most of these host cities use the Olympics as a way to rally funds for long-standing infrastructural projects. 
That being said though, it's still really hard to justify the expense. In fact, over the past 40 years, there's only been one city in the world that's managed to actually turn a profit from hosting the games. Los Angeles back in 1984. Okay, so you've gone through the trouble of pitching, you've won, you've built out all this infrastructure, and then the 16 days of the games come, and then they leave. And these cities, they're left with these massive purpose-built stadiums that cost an additional tens of millions of dollars every year just to maintain. And very few of these buildings have any real plans for the future. I mean, do we really need an indoor loose track in the middle of downtown? Sadly, we probably don't. Anyway, all of this stuff, it just seems to be so ill-conceived. All of these host cities and the buildings that were created for the games have taken on a really fascinating second life. Sure, some of them are in ruins, like in the case of Greece, but others have taken on an entirely new identity. So for example, one of the buildings that was used for the LA games, it's now home to this megachurch, while others like Lake Placid that hosted the Winter Games back in 1980, their Olympic dorms, they're now prisons. You wanna talk about a range, there it is. Dude, have you ever heard about Montreal's Olympic Stadium? That was our show's producer, Martin, and he recently took a trip to Montreal, which hosted the 1976 Games. And, you know, I was vaguely familiar with the Montreal Games. It was before I was born, but I do know it was there that a pre-Kardashian Bruce Jenner, that's where he became a household name, as well as the poster child for Wheaties boxes everywhere. But the stadium, I had never heard of it before, and I'm really sad that I'm only learning about it just now. Because when it comes to host cities poorly planning for the Olympics, Montreal, my friends, you absolutely get to take home the gold. This building, Montreal's Olympic Stadium, this thing was a catastrophic failure on literally every level. For starters, when the building was first conceived, it had an estimated cost of around $148 million. But by the end, this thing wound up costing Montreal over $3 billion just to complete. So for the mathematicians listening, that's nearly 1,990% over budget. I've never heard of a project going that far over in any arena. I mean, this is unprecedented. In fact, the construction management system Podio, they recently ranked this building as number one atop their monumental failures list. And as absurd as the budget was, that's only one of the considerations that went into it being such a catastrophic failure. This building was designed by the French architect Roger Talibay, and he came to the table with a massive vision for this structure. Most notably, the stadium was designed to have this retractable fabric roof, and it used this elaborate set of strings that were attached to an inclined tower that spanned hundreds of feet above the opening. It looks kind of like the world's most complicated marionette doll or something. And look, I acknowledge that it's super easy to pick on known failures after the fact, to play Monday morning quarterback or something. But I'm telling you, if you Google Roger's model of this contraption, it looks absurd. And honestly, my first thought when I saw it is that there's no way that that worked. And you know what? It turns out, unfortunately, I was correct. The roof's design was a massive problem. But we'll hit more on that in just a moment. 
The stadium was incredibly hard to build from a construction perspective. And when the games opened in the summer of 1976, the tower that was supposed to hold the roof, not only was it not done yet, but they hadn't even started. The tower and its roof, remember, I mean, these were supposed to be the focal points of the structure. It was the center of his entire pitch. And in fact, if you go back and watch footage from those games, it looks so odd because there's a very obvious blank space in so many of the shots where the tower was supposed to be. Not only that, but they also left a number of the construction cranes there for the entirety of the Olympics. It was as though Montreal sort of put its hands in the air and said, you know, bless this mess and best of luck. It really did look absurd. But it also created some functional problems. Because despite the incomplete stadium and the cranes, the show must go on. And the games proceeded on time as planned. But issues they started to emerge almost immediately. The Olympic flame. That's probably the most symbolic element of the games. And like all the other games, it was lit by the Olympic torch. But on day three, it started to rain. And since there wasn't a roof, the torch got soaked and the fire went out. Not a great look for the Olympics. But that was just the beginning of their problems. After the games, Here you have this massive, incomplete building that was purpose-built for track and field in the middle of the city. And they didn't really know what to do with it. Eventually, the Major League Baseball team, the Montreal Expos, they moved in, called it home. But it was so obviously not made for baseball. The field was massive, weirdly shaped. And the dugouts, whereas usually in most fields they're dug out, they're underground, Here, they were plopped on top of this very hard AstroTurf field. And instead of having a regular outfield, they just put up this very temporary-looking fence. It looked super amateur and incredibly janky. As the Expos continued to play season after season, the roof was still being constructed in the background, albeit at a snail's pace. And it just seemed like they take one step forward and two steps back constantly. As the tower reached up to the fifth story, it caught on fire, causing delays yet again. Then, in 1986, as they made even more progress, a massive chunk of the tower fell down onto the field and created all this damage. The Expos had to cancel and reschedule games, and again, construction timelines were pushed back yet again. Fun times. Finally, in 1988, 12 years after the Olympics were over, the tower was completed and the roof installed. But again, almost immediately, the roof had massive problems. For starters, it didn't cover the stadium entirely, which caused the roof to leak, which negates the point of having a roof in the first place. Also, the retractable roof that marionette's string system, it didn't work at all if the wind was blowing. And in Montreal, the wind blew all the time. So during this era, the roof, it was often just oddly dangling. It was neither retracted into the tower nor completely on, just dangling very weirdly. Said differently, it never did either of the things it was meant to do. It was never contracted or expanded. Cut to 1991, and Montreal decided to renovate the stadium to finally make it more purpose-built for baseball. And yeah, 
The upgrades, they were done well, but there were still problems with that roof. For starters, another, that's right, a second massive slab of concrete fell from the roof again, and then a few months later, two massive holes developed in the fabric roof. In 1998, they decided to just replace the roof altogether with a fixed fabric material. And remember, the entire design of the stadium centered around the tower, the strings, and this retractable roof. But now with this fixed roof, yet again, the structure made no sense. In January of 1999, the new roof collapsed. Repeat, the new, new roof, it collapsed. It was snowing, you know, because Canada, and the weight broke through it easily. A complete failure yet again. And over the years, since its initial installation, that roof has torn over 7,000 times, repeating 7,000 times. Anyway, in 2004, it was announced that the Montreal Expos would be moving to the there United States to become the, the Washington Nationals. Baseball is back in Washington, All around Which meant that this stadium no longer had a tenant. Funny enough, Major League Baseball has continually through the years entertained the idea of bringing a franchise back to Montreal. But in their documents, they explicitly say by name that this team, should it ever happen, will under no circumstances play in the Olympic Stadium again. Two years later, with no tenant and a still questionable roof, Montreal finally paid off their stadium, 30 years after the Olympics had left. Astronomically over budget, decades of delays, and again, after all of that, it never one time in its history did what it was actually supposed to do for any event, tenant, or even sport. It was a failure on every level. Through these first 20-some episodes of Fail Hard, we've kind of danced around the stated premise of the show, failure. I've often been guilty of conflating failure with things like iteration and process, and those are just completely different things. But here, in the case of Montreal's Olympic Stadium, we have an undeniable see-picture definition of what it means to fail, to have a goal, and miss it completely and utterly. And after studying all of this building's ups and downs, well, actually mostly downs when it comes to this stadium, I was kind of just left with one question. How? How could all of this have happened? You know, there's this quote that Conor McGregor said in the ring after he lost his first fight in the UFC. You know, losing a fight is such a humiliating thing. You know, you've lost, you feel just completely dejected, you're covered in blood. But in that moment, he said something in the spirit of, sometimes you win and other times you learn. And today I learned. And I think that's such a great posture as we think about fails in general. What can we learn? And so as we look at this debacle that we've just unpacked, what can we learn from it? What emerging principles can we apply to our work, our lives, our careers? Well, as I see it, there are three big lessons that we can take away from this failure. And these lessons, they apply to so many things. The first lesson is vision without a plan is pointless. When you look at Tali Bear's earlier drawings and models, 
and then look at aerial shots of the building as it exists today. It's actually kind of shocking how similar they actually look, despite all the challenges that we've been talking about. But to me, it's very clear, painfully clear, that this building was designed completely in the bubble of his own studio, totally divorced from the real world. He conceived of this wildly complicated building, using only things like aerial drawings, ideal models, and slick presentations. And so from above, from 50,000 feet, it's still kind of perfect today. But the second you go on ground level, the building falls apart completely, even now. It has confusing entrances, weird traffic flows, and more importantly, a fundamental lack of understanding of basic construction processes. This building could only exist in Utopia. But of course, Utopia is just a dream. Said simply, he just had no idea how to manage a project of this scale. First of all, they started two years late, so before they even broke ground, they were already behind the eight ball. And so, to make up time, they had multiple teams working at the same time. And on the surface, this might sound like a good idea, but it actually made things move even slower. The job site became complete chaos. Teams couldn't get to their sections. Electricians would show up only to find the walls that they needed to be in were already closed. Everyone was getting in everyone else's way. At one point, there were over 200 massive cranes all working side by side, essentially blocking each other. So to catch up yet again, they had workers coming in around the clock. But of course, that led to time and a half pay for hundreds of workers at a time which led to further logistical chaos, financial recklessness, and, of course, no coordination. There was no plan. And when you add to that the lack of additional planning for things like weather delays and worker strikes, and it was more than any timeline or budget could possibly bear. Again, vision, it's so important. But vision without a plan is pointless. The second lesson is that too much innovation is poison. And I gotta say, this is one of the most common problems there is in the world of innovation, trying to cram too many ideas into one project. And it's so easy to understand how this can happen because the new is always interesting and intoxicating. But it takes maturity to show restraint. But again, Tally Bear, he went all out. We've discussed this roof ad nauseum, of course, but the thing about that roof is that every element of it used new and unproven technologies. And by extension, there were no proven building processes to construct it, which led to countless errors and delays. And then on the structural side of things, engineers begged Roger to use steel. But instead, he designed the building to use these wildly complicated concrete ribs that had to be delivered in a very specific order and placed perfectly. But no one on the team had ever done this kind of work before, by the way, including Roger. So many of these ribs were misaligned, which led to structural issues and countless complications. They also used these new adhesives and epoxies all over the place, and this had never been done before at this scale. And so, of course, no one knew how to apply them correctly. I could go on, but look, new is good. And pushing the boundaries, it's so important. But too much innovation is a large part of why this building ultimately failed. 
Which takes us to the third and final lesson, embrace constraints. As every creative person knows, constraints are actually your friend. Some believe that creativity, it can't even exist without them. But this project, this project is a case study in throwing constraints right out the window. I mean, let's start with how the project was awarded in the first place. You know, I hate bidding for projects because it can feel like such a waste of time and money. But I will say this, putting out RFPs, that constraint, it does ultimately serve a purpose. It puts in a system of checks and balances that keeps things running smoothly and everything above board. But when Montreal was awarded the games, the then mayor, he hired Tally Bear on a handshake behind the scenes. There was no open bidding process. And this is completely unprecedented, especially when you're considering a project of this scale. Had there been an actual bidding process, there's no way Tally Bear would have won. Because whatever virtues he had as an architect otherwise, and believe me, there were a lot of positive things to be said about him, staying on schedule and budget was not one of them. He had a long history of going way over budget and having schedule delays all the time. Anyway, once awarded, constraints, though, were further disregarded. Despite having a hard launch date, you know, the opening ceremony of the Olympics, they didn't work backwards from that date, you know, that constraint, to ensure that the building could even be created in that period of time. He also didn't listen to the engineering nor the construction constraints, which caused both of those to have a number of failures. And, of course, he didn't operate in the budgetary constraints, obviously. Again, this project went over by billions of dollars. And one of the most absurd things I read in doing all this research was that, in the midst of all of this chaos, he pushed to install a waterfall in the parking garage in the 11th hour. This added another $8 million to the already expanding budget, and, of course, even more delays. It's so delusional. I mean, every element of this building was failing, but sure— Let's change the design for some inconsequential water feature in a parking lot. Regardless, all of this, it just shows such a lack of focus and a disregard for constraints. So when you consider all three of those takeaways, a vision without a plan, too much innovation crammed in, and a disregard for constraints on every dimension, it really is no wonder that it all went down the way that it did. You know, as much as I'd like to sit here and act like I would never be so naive or arrogant to make so many errors, if I'm being honest, Bear's mistakes, they feel really familiar. Like him, I'm also drawn to the ideal. I think so many designers are. I fall in love with my own ideas. I sit at my computer in the studio and just gorge on the novel, the next, the shiny, the new, and just throw constraints completely out the window. And sure, there's completely a time and a place for that. That can be fun and magical. But the real magic of what we do as designers, as creators, as makers, is to actually bring ideas out of our heads, out of our computers, and into the real world. In the real world where gravity, time, weather, budget, processes, materials, and teams, they all exist. Our work doesn't live in this tiny ideal model or some naive aerial view. It lives on ground level where it's messy and slow at times, but it's necessary to embrace all of it. Learn to love all of the non-ideal. And you know, I'm currently building an AI startup with my company, Rain, and we were recently awarded a sizable Series B. And I genuinely believe we're doing something really important in the world of AI and the future of work. 
But as we create so much newness, new ways of interacting with technology, new design patterns, new hardware, new data, new, 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 the lessons of Montreal, the lessons of Tali Bear and the big O as it's been called, they're gonna stay with me. Because sometimes failure really isn't an option. If you found any of this stuff about the life of Olympic buildings after the games are gone interesting, you may want to check out a really great photo series by Gary Hustwit, uh, the guy who directed the film Helvetica and a number of others, and the photographer John Pack. They've traveled to a number of these former host cities, and the images they've captured are haunting. You can check out their website, olympiccityproject.com. Fail Hard is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this podcast is enabled by the Creative Cloud, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Thank you, Adobe. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of this podcast, you can check out our website, americabydesigntv.com. Also, we're releasing new episodes most weeks, and if you haven't yet, go ahead and hit subscribe now so you can stay up to speed. Lastly, if you have any questions or suggestions for the show, feel free to shoot me a note. Hello at willhall.co. We'll see you soon.